This is the Territory Story Podcast with Leon Logan-Nathan and Peter Gowers. Thanks to Ward Keller, the Territory Law Firm. Hello and welcome. This is the Territory Story Podcast. My name is Peter Gowers. Joining me, my co-host, Leon Logan-Nathan. How are you, mate? I'm well, Pete. I'm well. I uh, just got home from work and, uh, and uh, feeling a little bit relaxed, to be honest. I was going to say, feeling like a punching bag. Do I? No, 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 no. It was all good, mate. <laughs> a very, very exciting day at work today. So, good. Yeah, that's good. Excellent. Well, um, people won't be able to see this, but uh, take it from me that I'm as rugged up as rugged up can be. I've got a fire from hell that I've lit tonight to try and warm myself up. Right. And the, the fire's doing a pretty good job, but uh, it was minus one this morning. I, I thought of you as I'm sure you're in 20-odd degrees, just loving life in shorts and T-shirt. It was minus one, and I was pouring buckets of water on the windscreen so I could actually remove the ice to be able to see to drop the kids at the bus stop. That sounds wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> see, if I'm going to be doing that, I want to associate it with a ski resort somewhere and have snow and all the trimmings of the minus one. The right. minus one with just some, uh, you know, some frost and freezingness does nothing for me at all. Fair enough. Well, mate, uh, I, I'm, I'm sorry to report this to you, but I read something in the NT Independent today that suggested that the borders might be shut for a, for a bit longer because uh, Chief Minister's worried about all the protests down south and whether that's going to create a COVID-19 problem for us. <laughs> right. <laughs> okay. I'm not sure how I should respond to that. I, I was... Perhaps the less said the better. <laughs> okay. We'll leave that one unsaid then. <laughs> All right, mate. Well, look, uh, our special guest on the podcast today um, is someone that uh, I met uh, a little while ago um, through a function hosted by the uh, CPAs of Australia, the Certified Practicing Accountants of Australia. Um, and, and although she's not an accountant, uh, they kindly invited uh, all the young uh, up-and-coming leaders uh, that were looking to uh, broaden their skill base in the area of networking and things like that. So um, that's where I, I met her. And then I completely forgot about that until I saw a, po- uh, a post on LinkedIn. And I thought, oh, now this person sounds interesting. Let me reach out to her and see whether she'd be uh, willing to come on the podcast and talk about what she does, to which she kindly agreed so um, I will introduce to you now uh, Madison Clonin. Madison is a research scientist with the Northern Territory Government and she works uh, uh, particularly in relation to uh, the mango growing industry, but we'll get Madeline mm. to, uh, sorry, Madison, I should say, Madison to, um, to explain that in more detail. Madison, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Do you go by Madison or Maddie? What do you prefer? Or Mad Dog? <laughs> I think Mad Dog is the way to go. For this setting anyway. I love it. <laughs> um, oh, I'm not fast. Lots of people call okay. me Maddie and that's, that's okay. fine. Well, we'll go with that. Yeah. So, Madison, please give us the, your title and uh, what you do at the uh, – well, what your current position is at least and then we'll talk about your – 
your 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 past where you were born and all that so sure um so i'm currently a research scientist with the department of primary industry and resources up here in the territory and i sit within the plant industries development group so specifically um, research relating to plant industries up here in the top end and for me fortunately that is all um, so far anyway been um, mango production research um, so it covers a whole range of different things I've worked um, I've worked on tree mango tree nutrition um, export um, mango quality through export supply chains um, I am currently doing some work on the impacts of climate change on mango production up here. And I've also been fortunate enough to do some mango research in Cambodia and, and Vietnam as well while I've been based up here. Oh, wow. So you're talking about one of our favourite subjects, right, Pete? <laughs> Correct. <laughs> and I have been known for jumping the gun, but I'm not going to do it. But I will be talking to you about a particular plant later on. Oh, yes. Yes, I think okay. I know which one you're talking about. Yes, but, uh, <laughs> but absolutely mangoes is one of our favourite subjects. Right. Mm -hmm. But, Madison, you are not from the Territory originally, are you? No. Um, I was born in the southeast of South Australia um, in sort of very flat um, some would say very boring agricultural country um, <laughs> in a small town called Keith. Um, and then I did all of my schooling and I sort of grew up um, in Adelaide. Right. So your parents are farmers? No, no. None of my family is farmers. We um, just like to live in the country, I guess. Mm. Um, but I guess what brought me, what led me to study agriculture was um, growing up in, in the countryside and, and being exposed to farming um, from a young age and, um, and really loving living in remote places, I guess. What's Keith famous for? Being the best place to stop between Adelaide and Melbourne. <laughs> I, I thought that was Bob Hawke's old hometown. They used to like to stop. <laughs> oh, I don't know. Look, it's a lovely, it's a very lovely place. I still have a lot of family that live there. Um, mm. It would be horribly freezing cold right now, so I'm very thankful I'm not there now. Yeah, Although um, it would be nice, would be nice to visit the family, considering it's been some time. So Keith, I uh, just looked it up. Uh, uh, Pete, Keith um, has a population according to the, to the 2016 census of 1,076. Okay, yeah, right. Um, so it sounds like you would have known everybody in town, Madison. <laughs> <laughs> yes, everyone knows everyone. Yeah, uh. that's exactly right. But it was look a love like I didn't I didn't spend a lot of time there as a child um, um, because I went to school in Adelaide. But I would go back on the weekends and I had lots of my friends were there. Um, and yeah, I guess I felt really lucky to be able to get out of the city and and go and stay somewhere somewhere different. Mm. Mm. It's uh, and it's two hundred and twenty five kilometres from Adelaide, so it's not too far. But two and a half hour drive, I suspect, is it? Yes, it's spot on. Mm. Yeah, that's not too bad. Right, and so um, uh, when you say you went to school in Adelaide, does that mean you um, you you were a boarder? 
No, no. My parents moved to Adelaide. Oh, okay. And did you have any yeah. siblings? Uh, yes, six of them. Um, <laughs> okay. Yeah. Peter yeah, feels no, right at home. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, no, I'm fortunate enough to be part of um, a bit of a blended family. So I've got, ah. um, I have three um, three step siblings, two half siblings and, and one full brother. Okay. So, um, wow. Yes. So there's a whole lot of us, which right. is pretty cool. I've, yeah. I've always loved that. Yeah. Yeah. They sort of have been from time to time scattered all over Australia. Um, so, uh, yeah, look, it's awesome. I love, I've loved it and I'm kind of in the middle. So, um, my older siblings are settling down and having kids. So that's wonderful. And my younger siblings are still trying to sort of sort out what life is. Um, so that's also entertaining. (laughs) Um, yeah, so I've been, I've been really lucky. I've got a very, very big family. Most of them are in, in, in South Australia now. They're all in South Australia now. Um, but yeah, I've, I've had a sister that's lived um, in uh, Mount Isa and another in Port Lincoln. So that's been pretty cool. So, um, what school did you go to in Adelaide? St Mary's College. Okay. My my parents gave me um, uh, gave me a choice when I finished primary school, and I chose Wilderness College. Um, which I imagine is the most expensive all-girls school in Adelaide and um, I unfortunately wasn't allowed to go. That, that wasn't one of, the, one, of the one of the options on the list. <laughs> but um, St Mary's must have been the next best and, and it was really good. Yeah, I really very much enjoyed high school. It was a very good school. And then uh, you, you finished high school and decided to go straight into environmental science. That. Correct. Yes. I was what? so excited to go to uni. I knew knew exactly what I wanted to do when I was in high school, so I was I was ready for it. Right. And was there any difference between going to Flinders or Adelaide Uni or Adelaide Uni didn't have that course? Or? Um I couldn't tell you. I, I, I think I might have picked Flinders because I think it might have been about the course. Right. Um I also lived towards that end of town as well. Um, I was living by the beach, so it was a bit easier to get to Flinders. Okay. And that was a three-year degree, was it? Yes. Yeah. Right. And and yeah. you, you finished that degree and then got a job straight away or what? No, no. I spent um, maybe three or four months searching for a job. And to be honest, when I, when I graduated, I felt still unsure about really what I wanted to do. So I I guess I was probably not really targeting my search very well. Um, And to be honest, didn't feel particularly well equipped um, for any particular role. I guess environmental science is pretty general, especially um, an undergrad degree. Um, So I, before I even graduated, I think I enrolled in... um, some further study. I knew that I wanted to learn more about agriculture. Um, and when I was actually applying for my undergrad, I was tossing up between envi- environmental science and agricultural science. Um, they both seemed um, very attractive to me and, and I, I kind of didn't understand 
how different they would be. I, I mean, I know agriculture is related to food production, but um, they had to be related, somehow related, um, because they're, they're both um, studies of the same system, essentially. But um, went with environmental science and um, then towards the end of my degree did a bunch of electives in agriculture from from another university so I knew mm. that I wanted wanted a bit of both so towards the end of my undergrad I enrolled in a master's in sustainable agriculture with Charles Sturt University um, and started that as soon as I graduated and um, studied it part-time so I knew it would take me about four years so I was looking for work as well um, and by that stage, I was pretty keen to get out of Adelaide as well. So I was sort of applying for jobs all over. Um, and yeah, it took, it took about three or four months to land something, um, as a new grad. So I did a lot of work for my parents at that time, just all sorts of odd jobs. Um, and then, uh, landed a grad position in Melbourne, um, about halfway through the year and yeah, moved over, moved over to Melbourne to sort of start my official real working life for, for the uninitiated um maddie could you just tell me what what are the likely sort of jobs that an environmental scientist does when they leave uni what what are the you know top three things they're likely to end up doing i guess the difficulty is that there's so many options um, and an environmental scientist with just an undergraduate degree um, essentially hasn't specialised in anything um, because we study in environmental science, um, geology and hydrology, climate science. Um, so I guess probably um, land management positions, um, something like a park ranger, um, or um, anything in land management, really, which could which could span from working on farm, um, working for the council, um, but it hasn't. I guess an I guess an undergraduate degree in environmental science doesn't probably give you enough research skills to go into sort of directly into research, um, but it's more applying technical te technical knowledge to to managing um, land. Mm. Um, so essentially, if if you have a specific interest in one of those areas, it's um, the next step is really to go and study more in depth into into one of those areas, um, and that's probably where I struggled because I didn't really know which I was most interested in, um, and I have since worked out that I think quite um globally and that isn't um particularly practical for a scientist so i've had to sort of try and manage that mm. um throughout my career but that made it difficult for me to identify really the area that i was interested in because i was more interested in the way that all of those science sciences fit together um so the job that I landed as a environmental science graduate um, was essentially a salesperson. <laughs> um, so I was working for a um, an agricultural seed company, so a company that grows and, and then sells mm. seeds to farmers. But 
but also to um, um, organisations that are doing revegetation. So we specialise in, in native species. So um, a lot of revegetation and mine site rehabilitation as well. Mm. Um, so that I definitely had the tools um, to understand revegetation re and um, soil remediation and things like that um, as a environmental science graduate. Um, but I guess um, as I think it was sort of the sales component um, that sort of um, led me to, to move away and, and definitely study more and, and move towards, towards me, towards research. Mm. And so, the, you, so you did that job in Melbourne for how long? Uh, 18 months. Right. And you became quite good at sales then during that time? An <laughs> <laughs> important yeah, skill to have. Yeah, look, it was fun because I got to drive around and visit farms. Um, I hung out in a lot of wineries. Um, <laughs> so uh, it was it was good. I got to see a lot of the Victorian countryside and um, and explore Melbourne, of course. Um, uh, but, yeah, it, that was definitely not the path for me. I was much more interested in science and, and research. Um, and I absolutely hated the weather in Melbourne. So oh. I was never going to last there very long. <laughs> Makes two of us. <laughs> <laughs> and and so how, how did you leave that place? So I just um, packed my bags one day and left, essentially. <laughs> um, I had been to Darwin a couple of times on holiday um, a few years before I moved and... I guess I, I just knew my time in Melbourne was coming to an end. Um, thought I you know, was, was pretty desperate to try something new um, and explore a new place. So, yeah, I left my position there um, with, with, I guess, just the one plan, which was to put everything in my car and drive to Darwin. Um, wow. <laughs> I did. Um, you drove and... by yourself from Melbourne. Yeah, yeah. Obviously for Adelaide, so I stopped in to um, to catch up with family. Mm. Um, I had also furnished an apartment in Melbourne about six months before, so I had to sort of leave all of my stuff somewhere. <laughs> so I left all of that with my with my family, and um, yeah, just headed off. I, I had memories. I, I actually did the drive as a child with my family um, to Darwin, and. Um, I remembered it very fondly and was, yeah, really excited to do it, do it on my own. Um, but, yeah, that was my only plan was to come and live in Darwin. I guess I thought I would be here um, for maybe six months, um, have a bit of a break from working full time, try and find some casual work and explore a little bit. Um, but, yeah, that, that was the only plan I had. So I guess on reflection, I'm, I'm not really sure what I was thinking. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. It's, a, it's the biggest switch in weather that you're likely to get in Australia from Melbourne to Darwin. Mm. How, how did you settle in when you first landed? At what time of year was it when you landed in Darwin? It was September. Oh, <laughs> um, okay. Yeah, yeah. So I had a, I had a good friend. I knew one person here. Um, so I stayed with her for some time when I first moved here and her advice was to spend as much time outside as possible and not use the air conditioner. So I listened and... So she, so she was cheap. <laughs> yeah, yes, spot on. 
Um, so I spent a number of nights not sleeping, I guess. When I spent, <laughs> but, but I did adjust and it didn't take me, it didn't take me too long from memory. Mm. Yeah. And then uh, how did you sort of manage to get a job here? Um, so on the second, yeah, so on second day, I um, drove myself to Casuarina Library, I think, Casuarina Library, and set myself up with my computer um, to look for jobs and applied for a bunch of hospitality jobs. I had worked in hospitality while I was studying at uni, so I, I didn't think it'd be that hard um, to land myself a, just a job working in a bar somewhere and was um, fortunate enough to get a call while I was walking out of the library that day. <laughs> um, <laughs> um by someone who wanted me to start that night so um Typical yeah, I guess it, yeah yeah right. so that was really a really easy start um I actually worked that job for the next uh almost two years um so I was very thankful to um have a position because it then took me I guess I, after the six-month probation when I decided I actually wanted to stay um, and started looking for other jobs, it took me took me quite a while to find a position um, that was related to what I was, was studying at the time or ha- had studied in my undergrad. Um, so, yeah, I worked lots of, lots of casual jobs for, for about two years. Yeah, I was going to ask you that because, um, you know, one of the things that I guess Darwin and the NT is kind of famous for is that you can turn up with no job and have a job by the end of the first day. But when your skills are quite uh, specific as as yours were and are, um, there's probably not going to be an abundance of roles that are suitable for for your type of uh, skills. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So, um, I actually met, made some contacts through my first um, bar job um, that led me to get a part-time position at the Darwin Botanic Gardens, um, which was great because it was working mm. with seeds, um, seed pre- preservation, which is what, what I had done or kind of done in my previous role. Um, that was wonderful. That was really invaluable experience um, and probably did that for about a year and um and then at the same time did lots of volunteering and lots of all sorts of casual roles. I worked um, as a tour guide for a season, um, driving tourists out to Litchfield, which was awesome. Um, I worked as a nanny, um, as a cleaner. I kind of did everything everything that I could to fill mm. the time. And, um, and all the while driving out to Litchfield and Kakadu almost every weekend to go camping. So I was absolutely loving it. I, I, yeah, I was, I was, I was pretty fine with, with, with working casual jobs um, for some time. And, but I guess probably after about two years, I decided I really wanted to stay here and, and then I really, really wanted full-time work. Um, and then um, I was still studying uh, part-time and I, had to do a research project for the end of my degree I had to write write a dissertation so i think it required a 12 month long year long research project um and ideally i wanted to do it in industry or or with an organization um where i could where i could learn some new skills and and um, expand my network and i guess i was studying agriculture 
here, but I didn't. Um, I wasn't working in an agricultural industry and I had almost no contacts in, in ag up here. So I found, I, I identified that to be an opportunity um, to sort of um, meet, some, meet some people in the industry. And um, I was just lucky enough through an old friend um, to make contact with one of the um, senior researchers at the Department of Primary Industries. Um, which was very lucky and they were really keen, really keen to have me um, for 12 months to do a research project with them. And then that obviously led to my current position. Fantastic. And so what was your research project on? It was measuring the availability of nitrogen in mango soils. Um, so I was using these um, these little sort of hand-sewn resin bags um, that we bury in different places in the soil, leave for a certain amount of time. Um, as the water moves through them, any nitrogen that's in the soil gets absorbed by the resin. And then we take it back to the lab, dig them out of the ground, take them back to the lab, and we can extract the nitrogen out of the resin. And I was comparing the amount of nitrogen, um, specifically the amount of nitrogen that was available to plants in um, directly underneath mango trees and then comparing it to um, the rows in between mango trees or the inter-row, that's what we call it, that has the, um, the sort of grass or cover crop growing over it. Um, so that was uh, a great introduction to field work in the NT because I did <laughs> a lot of digging um, mm. and our soils aren't up here aren't particularly soft, so that was <laughs> loads of fun. Um, and But, I, I mean, I... I managed to get um, three different research sites, so that was cool. So I got to meet three different mango growers um, and check out their farms and learn loads about them. And I think I, and of course, um, learn some new lab techniques and 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 do all this with with the support of the um, staff at, at the Department of Primary Industry. And um, I think it was about six six months into my research project when um, they offered me a position with them. How, how were the nitrogen levels? That's what I was going to ask. <laughs> <laughs> um, typically very low. Uh. And if they are high, it's not for very long. So our wet season rains just wash virtually everything away and, and most of the soils up here, and unless they've been even even if they've had a lot of work done to them and are, and are very well cared for, um, don't hold on to much much nutrients for very long. Um, mm-hmm. And nitrogen's metabolised very quickly in this environment up here, so it's it's lost usually in some direction, whether that's out into the air or or down into the water table or, or used up by by growing plant um, very rapidly. So I think the highest the highest spike that I got was actually related to um, some grass clippings that um, had come from mowing the interrow <laughs> and they were just sort of dumped in a pile yeah. um, to one side of the interrow and as they were breaking down, obviously released a lot of nitrogen. So mm. there's very, very little nitrogen in um, a mango growing systems naturally up here, which is actually an advantage to mango production because um, the Growers can have a lot more control over when ah. nitrogen is available to the trees. Right. That was going to be my next question. So does that mean it has to be introduced, but they can control it much better that way? 
Correct. Yeah. Mm. So there are some disadvantages to um, uh, production systems, mango production systems that are naturally um, high in soil available nitrogen. Um, and most of them are related to um, essentially overproduction. So trees growing really, really big, really fast, having very fast growth rates um, and therefore being difficult to manage. But also um, production volumes seem to drop off when when mangoes are being produced in a high high nitrogen environment um, mm. because the trees aren't the trees naturally then don't go don't undergo any stress mm. um, and really have no need uh, to reproduce essentially which is which is to produce fruit. Mm. So after finishing this. Uh research and then obviously having this full-time job what do you do on a day-to-day basis when i first started i um was fortunate enough to get a scholarship from the uh, crawford fund which is um an australian fund that provides um capacity building um support for early career researchers in agriculture specifically for um, researchers in the area of um, international development, agricultural research for international development. So um, that was wonderful because the NT, um, the department had a project at the time um, funded through ACR, the Australian Centre for International Agricultural Research, to do some mango research in Cambodia. So um, with my scholarship, I was able to accompany the researchers over there and um, essentially kick off my career in the territory in in Cambodia. Um, So uh, the research there, although has a lot of differences to the research here, um, is is essentially the same type of research. Um, We were studying post-harvest quality of mangoes, so that's how to prevent mangoes essentially from looking bad by the time they get to the shelf and also from um, having any internal issues for when you cut them open and then actually eat them. Um, and the some of the issues they have in Cambodia are very similar to the issues that we have here in the, in the Territory in regards to mango fruit quality. Um, so the research we're doing there is, is useful to, to the local indus- industry here as well. So I spent... Um, uh, did three trips to Cambodia and um, they're all of our sort of experimentation and um, sample collection, data collection is essentially crammed into two into a two-week trip um, and um, we work with the local research um, agency there which is the equivalent of what, what we are here and yeah I got to to a bunch of work in, in Cambodia, which I could never have expected to be doing. I That was, yeah, I had absolutely not planned to be doing something that exciting um, and was thrilled. It was, it was brilliant. It was a really incredible way um, to gain lots of skills that researchers need, um, uh, working in a diverse team, um, obviously working with language barriers in a, in a different country um, and coordinating um research sort of on the fly which was which was awesome and um i absolutely loved it i um 
uh, have since finished that project but would, would absolutely jump at the opportunity to do that kind of work again. Um, yeah, and met loads, loads of people while I was there as well that I'm, that I'm still in touch with now. So that was sort of my first, yeah, that was, that was my first um, taste of, of ag work in the Territory that wasn't in the Territory. Maddie, what, what has your research um, shown you or what have you learnt through your research to, to show you how the NT uh, does things on a, on a world-class level? We're very fortunate here. We have the perfect environment for mango production at the moment anyway, um, which, is, which, is, which makes us very lucky. I mean, I, I would say we, we're at an advantage to anywhere else in Australia because of that. Um, we are effectively in regards to agricultural research somewhat of a developing industry um, because the mango industry in the top end is very young compared to most agricultural industries. And in regards to developing um, uh, local research and um, uh, things like um, farmers' groups and um, coordination of an industry, um, we're relatively young. So I think we do an exceptional job given um, how, um, how young the, the anti-mango industry is. Um, we are also really good at advertising ourselves <laughs> because we are a bit special. Yeah. And um, so I think, I think people recognise our branding as well. Um, so you might have seen recently that the NT is now the largest producer of mangoes in Australia. We have officially overtaken Queensland, mm. which we think is pretty special. Um, uh, so, yeah, um, the growers here, here do really brilliantly and have really done a really good job of establishing um, a very highly successful and productive industry in a very short amount of time. Mm. So on that on that subject, uh, Mary, uh, I, I didn't realise this until um, I was contacted a few years ago by some mango producers to help me help them with some some legal issues. I, I didn't realise, but there's quite a large Vietnamese population that grows mangoes up here. Yeah, yeah, very large. I couldn't I couldn't put a number on it, but I would. Yeah, a very significant portion of the industry. Amazing, amazing. I went. I was invited to a Christmas party a couple of years ago, and uh, and it was out in the boonies, and <laughs> I rocked <laughs> up there, and there must have been, you know, two hundred cars parked on the uh, on the property, and they were almost. It was like ninety five percent of the people there were Vietnamese, and they were just having mm. the best time celebrating Christmas and uh, tons and tons of food and I just I just didn't realize that we had this uh, this diaspora here in uh, in Darwin yeah yeah it's fabulous and um, and they're not only mango growers they, they grow a range of different horticultural crops as well um, and um, supply a significant if not majority of the um, tropical fruits to Sydney and, and Melbourne markets. Um, things like jackfruit um, and 
Um, what's the other one that's like jackfruit that smells really bad? Durian. 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 <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, so Tim, I, I, I watched something uh, a little while ago. Actually, one of my relatives in, in Perth actually sent it up to me and said, check this out. And it was an ABC program on this guy that was developing this uh, durian, uh, well, this type of durian, which is supposed to rival the best durians that you can actually get in Thailand. Do you know anything about that? I know who you're speaking about, yes. He's a brilliant young farmer, actually. Um, A very, very clever young guy. And I think he's the biggest durian grower in Australia. Um, And yes, there's been quite a lot of news coverage about his durian um, and its huge success in Sydney um, for um, migrants who are used to um, buying durian in their home country and are now able to buy it in Sydney, which which would be awesome. So yeah, he he is a fabulous um, uh, farmer up here. He's actually a mango grower as well. Um, and, uh, yeah, I, I think that's a, a wonderful thing for the territory, um, uh, to have, um, young entrepreneurs in agriculture. And I guess that's another thing that makes the territory a bit special, um, in that there's opportunity for that here. Whereas, whereas elsewhere it can be really, really hard, I guess, to establish yourself in, in, um, in much more established agricultural industries. Can you dispel a myth for me, Maddie, or confirm it? <clears throat> Are the mangoes still picked in the Northern Territory, sent down south and then trucked back up again? Oh, I, I don't think so because I, there might be some. <laughs> I, don't, I, don't, <laughs> I don't want to say there isn't any because there may be yeah. some. Um, but to get mangoes into South Australia and then into other markets, there is another level of, of post-harvest treatment that is required. Mm. So if you're, if you're targeting um, NT supermarkets, there would be no point in, in wasting your money doing that. Mm. Um, but I would assume that if the supermarkets are looking for mangoes and can't maybe can't get them here or... Um, already have some that they've bought and they're in SA and they don't want to buy any more. Mm. Um, yeah, they, they could possibly send them back up. Mm. Um, but I'd, I'd say it's a small proportion given um, southerners tend to buy significantly more mangoes than us because it's a bit of a specialty and, and yeah. certainly less so of a specialty up here. I mean, it's just such an excellent fruit. Maddie, I had a whole lot of um, overseas dignitaries turn up here uh, in December last year uh, and uh, I introduced them. Uh, they were from all over the world um, through a legal association that we belong to and I introduced them to our Bowen mangoes and that just the expression on their face when they first <laughs> tasted it was just priceless, you know. <laughs> uh, it, it's just one of the most amazing things that I think the territory produces. Yeah, yeah, I agree. And it's nice. It's it's nice that um, visitors can experience that part of the territory. I think, and 
um, hopefully it's a, well, it sounds like it was quite a memorable experience and I'm glad. Yeah, yeah. Well, they ordered it uh, several times during the weekend of the week, you know, <laughs> so it was fantastic. But well, um, it's, it's interesting. For, for one of the, I think this fifth or sixth biggest fruit um, crop in the world, there's quite a lot of places in the world that, that don't get access to mangoes or, or only get access to them for, for a short period of time. Um, given how seasonal they are. So um, in regards to market opportunity, there is significant opportunity for, for mangoes globally. How do you get them out of the country? It's not easy. Mm. Um, yeah, and, and that's something we're still learning how to do um, in the NT and, and even in Australia. Um, they're, they're quite precious. So they, they need they need a lot of care, um, yeah. So there's a whole depending on where they're going. There's obviously a range of biosecurity treatments. Um, there are a number of open markets that that Australia can send mangoes to without treatment, um, and we are currently sending mangoes to some of those. Um, but then there's a bunch of bunch of hurdles for others. Um, but we have a number of top end growers that are sending mangoes overseas. Um, to where some. Um, all through Asia, Japan, China, some to the US. Um, I know over the last sort of four years, um, we've done several trial shipments to the US and um, there are some growers that are interested in sort of um, continuing that. Um, I saw some Australian mangoes in Singapore when I was there last. Um, Dubai is also quite a big market um, and New Zealand, of course. Um, but those do you have to send them to, to some sort of is it is it a heat treatment i can't remember and, and you finally bought that facility there was some government funding for that wasn't there yeah so um there is hopefully a it's called a vapor heat treatment which is right. which is essentially a heat treatment but it's it's heat applied through um uh like a high humidity system and um there is Fingers crossed, going to be one developed at um, Darwin Airport, mm. which is which is huge because all of the fruit that's exported overseas from the Northern Territory currently goes through Queensland um, to be pro to be treated with that. Um, or there is another treatment um, called irrad irradiation, which um, is a sort of the equivalent, um, but but quite a different treatment. What does it do to the fruit? Yeah. Um, well, we hope it does nothing to the fruit, essentially. <laughs> um, it's not meant to do anything to the fruit. It's meant to do, um, it's, it's meant to get rid of all the nasty things that, that might be in the fruit or, or on the fruit. Um, yeah, so it's a, it's for, um, it's a biosecurity precaution. So we know, um, that, um, BHT, vapor heat treatment and irradiation kill fruit fly, um, fruit fly larvae in fruit, um, which is big, um, obviously interest in that in Australia even, um, in domestic, um, moving around fruit domestically, um, but any, any other path pathogens. Um, so Singapore, for example, is an open market, so fruit can go there without that treatment, um, but New Zealand is not. So, mm. and, and the difference essentially for um, producers between those two markets is, is they essentially make more money if they send them send them to a treatment market. So, um, uh, yeah, so we're currently building our capacity um, in both areas of those international markets, um, but those 
um, yeah, those treatments should do nothing to the fruit. Um, there is a risk um, that there can be some damage from um, heat um, and also from irradiation. Um, but part, part of the work I've done in the last couple of years and, and quite a lot of work that's been done in Queensland as well um, has identified strategies to protect the fruit um, through those treatments and, and it can be done quite easily. Um, it's things um, taking precautions like making sure the fruit um, is at a specific um, stage of maturity when it's picked um, and um, the treatments are very well controlled. Um, so um making sure that that the parameters during treatment are are um are perfect and nothing um gets gets too hot or, or gets a longer treatment than necessary um and then they'll be fine i'm glad you answered that question because initially i was thinking um the treatment was to make the fruit feel like it was at home sort of uh, <laughs> <laughs> going on holidays but still at home Maddie, obviously mangoes are your area of specialty, but look, in recent years, we, we've seen the uh, banana industry decimated in the NT. Do, do you know much about what, what's going on with the whole banana freckle thing and how it's occurred and, and whether the industry will be able to get back on its, on its two feet? I can't say I know a lot, but um, I guess I've seen a little bit of um, what's going on um, inside research in the top end, um, which is all very exciting. So um, uh, since all of our plants had to be removed and farms quarantined, um, there's been several, I think there was a number of years ago, I don't think I was here then. So there's been um, a number of years of um, research into new cultivars, essentially, um, resistant cultivars. Um, and that's still going on now. Um, we have several trials on our um, research farms. And, um, and um, I know that there are, there is some success, um, whether or not um, those uh, new cultivars will be released at, at any stage soon. I don't know. I imagine the development um, process for, for new cultivars takes some time. Um, but I, there's definitely hope. Um, there's no hope in removing the pathogen from the, ter from the territory because I, I think I understand that it's endemic to the top end. Um, there are some growers producing mm. bananas now um, so there are management practices, um, which I think involves um, uh, um, removing the plant material after a crop is harvested uh, and, um, and cover cropping the land with something else that reduces the load of the pathogen in the soil. Mm. Um, so I think there, there are some growers up here doing that successfully at the moment, um, uh, but I think um, research will hopefully come up with a, <laughs> with a permanent solution. Um, and yeah, there's, there's a lot of research going on behind the scenes. Um, but, um, it's obviously not the research that I'm doing. Um, mm. but it's in my, with my colleagues in, um, uh, biosecurity. Mm. Cause it's, it's not, um, dangerous to humans, is it? To consume bananas. It just looks ugly as I understand it. I think it actually kills the plant. Uh. Um, yeah, and I don't think it takes very long once it's there. Um, uh, I've seen pictures of, um, I know that you check for it by, by um, 
uh, cutting leaves and stems in half and and you can see it sort of infecting the inside of the actual plant itself mm. um, so I think I think it actually takes sort of wipes the plant out uh, okay that makes sense can you just explain to me Maddie something that just is a slight pet hate for me. <laughs> uh oh. <laughs> bananas. Bananas. Oh. Right. I love bananas. Um, my kids love bananas. When I go overseas and I buy a bunch of bananas, I can sit them on the table, on the counter, and they will stay nice and yellow for a week. Right? When I go and buy a bunch of bananas here in Darwin, <laughs> they are that they're generally that generally I buy them that are sort of slightly tinged with green. Uh-huh. They are yellow the next day, and then pretty much the day after that, they are overripe. What the not alike is going on, Maddie? What's going on? <laughs> You're not, haven't you gotten used to eating frozen bananas yet? It's the only way. Yeah. Yep. It is. But the, okay, yes, the no, reason I why I haven't is because when I go overseas, when I go to places like Malaysia and Singapore, I can buy a bunch of Chiquita bananas and they taste sensational for the entire <laughs> week. I can actually solve that problem for you, Leon. What? If you go to the supermarket and you go to the confectionery aisle and pick up a <laughs> bag of Alan's bananas <laughs> they'll stay yellow forever <laughs> I I can't tell you why that happens I I would say that the difference in cultivars um, is just that it's a cultivar difference um, we've seen that in mango there are um, some mango cultivars that have significantly longer shelf life than others um, and that's obviously a trait um, that is bred for um, and selected for. So I assume, I can only assume it's the same in, in bananas and we've got this weird um, situation in Australia where um, Woolies and Coles think that we only want to eat the one type of banana. Um, so <laughs> we're stuck with that banana as far as I'm concerned. Um, but, I mean, if we want to grow bananas in the Territory, I think it's quite likely we are going to have to start eating um, a different banana and maybe then we'll get a longer yeah. shelf life. But I don't know. Yes. I love it. Because, even, I mean, I've been to New Zealand and to my complete <laughs> astonishment, in New Zealand they actually import bananas from Ecuador. Oh, wow. Right? Wow. And I thought, my God, you know, can you imagine us importing bananas into, you know, I mean, there would be a riot. The government would, would be thrown. Yeah. Um, I hope so. And, uh, yeah. and, and yet the bananas are just amazing. You know? yeah. And I'm just thinking to myself, what the heck's going on? Why, why do our bananas, are our bananas gassed? I mean, what's going, you know, I, <laughs> what's happening? You've thought about this deeply, Leon. Oh, mate. I'll I'll have to ask the next banana grower I see and um and get back to you. Yeah. Um, What's with the red I, thing down the bottom of the banana? Sometimes you see them. There's like the riddle. The waxy. Red, thing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I don't know. I'll ask yeah. them that too. I'll I've I've often wondered that, and and you've sort of partially 
you, you've you've led me up a certain path, Maddie, because <laughs> now I'm like, oh, okay, so all the bananas are the same, except you do get those um, those ladyfinger ones, yes, which. That's the only variation really, isn't it? Yes. Yeah, and to so think how I've many different bananas. Yeah. If you've ever been to Asia, you will know that there are. Correct. So many and so delicious yes. and so many yeah. different different uses. It's mm-hmm. Yeah, it'd be great to have more of them here. Maybe that's something the Territory can, um, can lead up. Yeah. So on, on the subject of, of, of variety, uh, just to sort of tack back to the mangoes. Now, I, I, I know and love deeply the Bowen mango, the Kensington Pride. I'm a bit sus on the R2E2. I just feel like it's a little bit too, um, too good looking and, uh, you know. <laughs> it sounds like it's out of Star Wars. Hey, uh, well, you know, it's just, uh, it looks like it's out of fake fake uh, boob job or something it just (laughs) just doesn't look right mate but anyway on the other hand i was recently introduced to the um the nam doc my my god what an underrated mango and why on earth is that mango not more readily available in darwin i have to say it's probably more readily available in darwin than anywhere else in australia um, and it is, I believe, traditionally eaten green. Um, so it's um, essentially up to us <laughs> as consumers to demand it. It's the same scenario as, as different um, banana varieties in, in, to some extent. Um, there are a lot of growers in the Territory that are growing Namjok Mai. I imagine most of them um, uh, go to Sydney. Um, in the same way that durian does um, because there's quite a big market there. Um, But uh, I assume the reason why we don't see a lot of it on our shelves is is because there's not not a lot of demand and and they tell us that we're pretty fussy consumers and we we like our mangoes um, to look the same as they've always looked. But, of course, there's lots of of different types of mangoes and and they're all brilliant um, and some, you know, vastly different to others and and all have quite significantly different flavour profiles. So it's a lot of fun trying trying different mangoes and um, Namdok Mai... um, uh, and a range of other Asian varieties that have that have come to the top end um, are really interesting because they actually have a, have quite a different um, production cycle. And if you have seen them up here at a market, you might notice that they're they're out quite early, available quite early because they actually flower um, much earlier than than many of our other commercial varieties up here. Right. Have you ever tried it, Pete? Namdok Mai. I was just going to say, I haven't. What do they actually taste like? Oh, mate, they are just amazing. They're a very long and thin mango. Mm. But you think like, because you're thinking about the, the Bowen mango seed, which is quite a big seed, the Namdok Mai seed, it's sort of like it's really flat mm. and thin. So there's a reasonable amount of flesh on the mango, even though it's long and sort mm. of, you know, narrow. Uh, have you tried it, Maddie? I have, yes, yes, absolutely. Um, it's quite similar to the mango variety that I studied when I was in Cambodia, which is called Keramet. 
um, which is pretty famous throughout Asia. Everyone wants to get their hands on it. Um, and in fact, lots of international investors flock to Cambodia to, to try and buy farms or um, or set up export supply chains because it's 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 got this um, sort of reputation as being um, delicious, like um, one of the one of the best tasting mangoes. So um, that's another one to keep an eye out for. I know it is produced on a very small scale up here in the top end. Um, looks looks similar. Um, actually looks um, a bit like it's in between your Kensington Pride and an Amdok Mai. It's a little bit rounder but still has that sort of long, long body. What's your favourite mango? Hmm. I <laughs> Good question. love all mangoes. <laughs> no. um, like my I, children, I love them all. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think... Look, I don't have, probably don't have a favourite, but my my what I'm very excited about at the moment um, is some new mango varieties um, that are not um, produced at the scale that that our um, sort of major ones are at the moment, but hopefully they will be one day because there's there's a lot of new um, new cultivars that will come onto the market that are really exciting. Um, the NT has been involved in a research program to develop. Um, new cultivars for some time and um, I do a lot of work on on studying those and their production um, up here in the top end um, and they'll be really exciting they they've got beautiful they're all a beautiful color um, and I think you'll find possibly rival your Kensington pride in um, in flavor and taste as well. All right, so. Maddie, that's enough teasing. Challenge right? accepted. <laughs> Honestly, um, if you're going to be involved in all these things, you're going to have to put on, like the Luxor Festival, a mango <laughs> festival. <laughs> you know, yeah. seriously, seriously. Yes. Uh, I've been to a mango festival here. I'm surprised you've missed it. When there is one. That? They, they knew is? mangoes, Leon, so they didn't invite you. <laughs> <laughs> Um, it was small and it was in the rural area, but there, there is, there is one, there is one, um, but maybe it needs revamping and we, we need to bring it into town. Well, the government was right behind the, the Luxor Festival, which I thought was a, just an absolutely magnificent idea, whoever in the government thought that up or, or not in the government, as the case may be. Mm-hmm. Brilliant, brilliant idea. I mean, it was mm-hmm. just perfectly Darwin. I believe you can still get Luxor toasted sandwiches. That's how popular they were. Wow. Okay, so I, I tried to go through as many of those as I could. Uh, not the toasted sandwiches. I don't think I had that one, but I had the ice cream. That was pretty oh. spinny. Mm. Yeah. Um, I had the burger. Um, but, you know, would they need to do a mango festival in town, not in the rural areas. I mean, God bless the rural areas. But they, they need to have one in the city and have all these different kinds of mangoes because Darwin people don't know much more than R2E2 and Bowen. Mm. Mm. Yep, yep. yep. Well, what a great Charles. idea. And there is a big mango festival in Sydney on Bondi Beach each mm. year. Um, I say we, we bring it to Darwin. Yeah. yeah. 
All right. So anybody in government that's listening to this podcast, uh, there's your assignment for next uh, this year. Yeah. <laughs> if you're looking for a project. <laughs> get, get it ready by the time the mangoes are ready to be picked. That, that's it. That's it. <laughs> now, Pete, I know you've been saving up your best question for last. <laughs> are you going to launch it? Because I suspect Maddie, I know, I know what Maddie's answer is going to be, but, you know. All right. Well, yeah. All the I, dice. I, I definitely couldn't let you go without... Uh, uh, touching on a subject because we, we don't get too many environmental scientists to chat to, particularly those that specialise in plants. Now, it's <laughs> been a particular type of plant she that the Northern, becomes synonymous with the Northern Territory in recent times. What, what do you, what's going on with the hemp production in the NT? Um, I, not a lot that I know of. Um, but I think the ball is rolling and I think mm. we'll, we'll probably have a bit of it soon. <laughs> um, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of excitement. Um, uh, but I, to be honest, I haven't seen any. Um, but uh, I, think it, I think it could do great things for the NT. I think it will be really good. Right. So you, so you haven't studied the legislation at all in terms of the toxicity and all that sort of stuff. There's, there's, there's all sorts of levels that you've got to comply with and everything. Absolutely. Um, no, I haven't studied it. I have a, mm. I have a colleague who um, has headed not it up. Not formally. <laughs> no, not formally, no. Just, just when not I was in at any uni. capacity, actually. <laughs> um, but you will, you will be aware that it's being produced for fibre. Yeah. Um, yes. Yeah, so could be a very valuable industry for, for NT. And you said you've got a colleague that um, is, is doing that? Or was, mm-hmm. who, who is that? Can you, can you tell us? Um, yes, I can. I could probably give you his um, contact details. I'm not right. sure if, if he'll want everyone to know who can he is. Now? <laughs> give it to us now. <laughs> he, might, he, he probably will, will want to be on your podcast, um, yeah. I imagine. So. Yeah, I'll, I'll put you in touch. Yeah, because we've got a few. Uh, we've got. I mean, uh, uh, through uh, our association of lawyers around the world, we have a very good network of of um, lawyers that actually now, because of all the legislative changes around the world, actually specialise in cannabis um, more. And oh, wow. uh, one of the things I was thinking of doing was was getting a couple of those guys from Canada and the US onto this podcast. But uh, if we can do it in conjunction with your guy. Uh, mm-hmm. We might be able to, you know, connect some serious dots. That would be brilliant. I imagine. I imagine he has a um, communication plan in place, and and he's probably actively looking to to tick some boxes. Mm. Great, great. We, we might even uh, record that episode from LA. I think. Uh, <laughs> yes, yes. Madison. <laughs> uh, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on this podcast. Uh, I've learned a lot about mangoes. Um, Pete needs to taste more mangoes by the sounds of it. He's uh, ex- expand his repertoire. Um, we would certainly uh, encourage the Northern Territory Government uh, wherever possible to expand the knowledge of of different varieties of mangoes to the local population. We don't care about Sydney and Bondi Beach. We <laughs> we care more about Mindel and uh, Rapid Creek and Parap. And uh, we would really like to, uh, you know, I, I think the idea of getting those different varieties out and having people t- uh, road test them would be magnificent. Mm, brilliant idea. 
I'll make that um, my goal for the remainder of the year. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, thank you for coming on the podcast. And um, thank you for having me. That was Maddie Clonan, an environmental scientist specializing in NT mangoes on the Territory Story podcast. We'll catch you next time. You've been listening to the Territory Story podcast with Leon Logan Nathan and Peter Gowers. For more episodes, search Territory Story podcast on all leading podcasting platforms. The Territory Story podcast, thanks to Opie Dennis Digital Marketing, your local digital marketing agency.